world will celebrate Armistice Day. <clears throat> Twenty years have passed in which the rulers of nations have had time to digest the lesson of those four horrible years of heartache and strife. Now, here's my personal prayer, <clears throat> and I know it must be the prayer of millions and millions of other people all over the world. Please, God, let every day be Armistice Day. I hope that some of you, somewhere, have said amen. The war changed everything, the earth and the people on it. So proclaimed the 1949 uh, radio series, The Adventures of Frank Race. And indeed, the war did change everything. This is your host, Adam Graham, welcoming you to the war. In this special podcast series, we'll examine World War II through the ears of radio, as we honor those who fought and died to save the world from the evils of fascism and Nazism. We'll begin this program with the 95th anniversary of Armistice Day, and follow it through the 70th anniversary of D-Day, and the 69th anniversary of VJ Day. The generation that fought World War II was first called the greatest generation by NBC News anchor Tom Brokaw. Yet in many ways, they were reluctant warriors. While it's popular in the U.S. to view the time before December 7, 1941, as pre-war, the war had been raging for two years. What was the American reluctance? We'll examine it in this uh, first mini-series, The Reluctant Warriors. As Lionel Barrymore expressed in our opening clip from the Maxwell House Good News Program of November 10, 1938, Americans were weary of war. World War I had left 10 million people dead, including 100,000 Americans. War in the 20th century was fought on a more massive, bloodier scale than had ever been seen in human history. And that left America and much of the civilized world shell-shocked by the cruelties of modern warfare. America's historic uh, position had been one of neutrality in European affairs. Washington, in his farewell address in 1796, urged America to avoid entangling alliance. It had been sound advice for an America that was isolated from European capitals. Yet the world had changed much from Washington's time when it took months rather than hours to travel to Europe. Still, many Americans clung to the hope that the World War would not affect them. With geographic and strategic advantages shielding America from the worst parts of the war. One of them was former President Herbert Hoover, who staunchly urged neutrality. In this address from July the 6th of 1939. And the dangers of our being dragged into war are in three directions. First, foreign propaganda to inflame our emotions and to mold our minds to war. Second, the preachments of our own mistaken officials and citizens which in effect support these propagandas. Third, steps taken by our government that while denying that they are intended to take us into war, yet entangle us with these very controversies, the end of which may be war. And here we can examine one of the methods of power politics. And that is propaganda. During the World War, propaganda was first developed into a national weapon no less potent than the killing of men. When peoples and governments weigh the sacrifice of their sons, 
then truth and honesty and tolerance and justice are thrown to the winds if a lie will serve better. The Great War was the first time in history when all the powerful agencies of publicity and the manipulation of news were organized without moral restraint under the genius of skilled men. There were built up a skill and a technique in front of which every citizen was helpless to know the truth. And since that time, the radio has become an additional weapon. We ourselves, when we entered the war, imitated the others. We created great propaganda agencies. And no man dared to question our answer under that fierce organized condemnation. Now, propaganda has three directions. Internal to mobilize emotions, external to influence neutral nations, and aggressive to influence the enemy. From the beginning of the World War, I saw the development of the propaganda directed at the United States from both sides. I was so impressed that I collected this material for years. The War Library at Stanford University holds stack after stack of this emanation from every government at war. And in the light of what we now know really happened, it comprises the greatest collection of part lies on the face of the earth. It ought to be studied. Now, there are certain types of propaganda in motion today which fertilize our soul for our entry, so, soil for our entry into the war. We're told that we must join in war or democracy will disappear from the earth. That is a propaganda of the preparatory type. From the alliance of the democracies with several totalitarian states, that ideological issue seems a little confused. Now, my sympathies are with the democracies of Western Europe, but those democracies have resources to defend themselves. They comprise great empires of hundreds of millions of people with resources needed to secure their defense. Whether they preserve their democracies is a question of their own will. We're told that if they fall, it, we will be the next victim. I do not agree that they will fall. But if they do fall, the exhaustion of the dictators will be such that they'll leave us alone for a quarter of a century at least. Still, beyond this practical concern was anxiety about war, and a f feeling of its futility and the utter waste of human life that was seen to characterize it. This was expressed in many classic works of the era between the wars, including All Quiet on the Western Front by Eric Remarque. It became a bestseller and an Oscar-winning film. A scene from this movie was reenacted on the Chase and Sanborn Hour from October 17, 1937, featuring Clark Gable. For us, he plays scenes from All Quiet on the Western Front, the picture which Universal made from Eric Remarque's famous book, acclaimed as one of the greatest chronicles of the World War. All Quiet on the Western Front, with Clark Gable as Franz and Don Amici as Paul, two young German soldiers. The scene is a dugout in the front-line trenches on the Western Front. It is a summer evening in 1918. The sound of muffled cannon on another sector drifts into the dugout where Franz and Paul are cooking a goose that Franz has stolen. Isn't it cooked yet, Franz? It takes a long time to roast a goose. Here, Paul, you base it a while. Where's Carl? I left the dugout a while ago. Poor kitty scared stiff. You know, it's kind of tough on these new recruits. Hmm, listen to the old veteran. Well, I remember when we first came up to the front, we were scared to death, too. When we first came up. Gosh, 
us. We were young then, Fran. wonder what'll happen when we go back. I don't know. When I think about it, when I hear the word peacetime, it goes to my head. If it really came, I think I would do some unimaginable thing. Something worth having lain here in the mud for. Four years of shells and bombs. Man, we'll peel that off as easy as a sock. Ah, uh, why don't they make the end of it? Hello? Oh, hi, hi, Carl. You're just in time. Say, what are you doing with those cherry blossoms? There was a tree in the orchard back there a ways. We have a big orchard with cherry trees at home. When they're in blossom from the hayloft, they look like one single sheep. So white. It's just the time. You little fool. You might have been picked off by some sniper. Here, come on. Get your food. Mmm. Mmm. Smells wonderful. Goose. Say, it's done now, Fran. Yeah, grab a piece. Hey, what's the matter? It makes me think of home. My mother always cooked goose on my birthday. Oh, but never one as good as this, Carl. Come on, get your mess plate. Where did you get a goose? We've had nothing but turnips for so oh, long. Oh, I did a bit of foraging. <laughs> it's a gift with Franz, finding food. <laughs> he was left in the middle of the ocean on a raft. He'd shoot a bear within half an hour and serve it up with mashed potatoes on a white cloth. <laughs> hey, what's, what's the matter, Carl? What? What was that? Franz, what was it? Oh, just a 12-inch. You'll soon learn the difference. Sure. They're closer. Oh, come on now, buck up, Carl. They're just beginning to wake up over there, but they haven't got our range yet. Huh! <laughs> that gave you a fright. Well, it was only a nose gap. Landed in the bushes behind us. Franz, I'm scared. Well, I want to go home. Well, I didn't know I was such a baby. Every man's a baby when he first comes out here. Two more days, make a week, kid. And then you can say you've been under fire. Here we go again. Oh, come on, come on. You'll get used to it, Carl. Yes, this may go on for hours. Here, come on. Come on, now. Eat your goose. I... I can't. I can't. Now, take it easy, Carl. Take it easy. I can't stand it. Leave me alone. Carl. Let me out of here. Carl. Let me out. Grab him, Carl. 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 The young fool is climbing out of the place. Carl. Carl, what? What's the matter? See it? It's all right, Carl. It's all right. We, we, we've got you now. Easy, Paul. That's it. Where did we get you, Carl? I don't know. I didn't see it. Here. Here, let me look. What is face from your canteen, Paul? Old joint's gone. Uh, I'll give a stretch. Oh, don't go away. Stay with me. He's fainted. Yes. He's numb now, but in an hour he'll be screaming with pain. And days before he dies. Such a kid, Paul. Such a kid. Oh, God. This is Carl Kendrick, 19 years old. And he doesn't want to die. Please don't let him die. Buck up, Paul. Maybe he's better off than we are. Franz, he's from my hometown. I'm going on leave next week. I'll, I'll have to see his mother. I'll have to tell her. <laughs> Why are you living, Paul, when Carl is dead? I don't know. Tell me. Did you see Carl die? Did you see him then? How did he die? He was shot through the heart. He died instantly. You lie. I know better. I've felt how terribly he died. I've heard his cries at night. Felt his anguish. Oh, tell me the truth. I want to know it. I must know it. I was beside him. He died at once. Oh, I know you want to comfort me. And I can't bear the uncertainty. Tell me how he died. No matter how terrible it was, it'll be far better than what I'm thinking. Carl died immediately. Fell absolutely nothing. His face was quite calm. Will you swear it? By everything that's sacred to you. Sacred? What is this sacred to me? 
Such things change pretty quickly with us out there. But will you swear it? Are you willing never to come back yourself if it isn't true? Yes. Yes. Carl died at once. May I never come back if he wasn't killed instantaneously. Pick the good shell hole and pull him up the mud. You think he's glad you're alive after that retreat? Yeah, counterattack's going over it. How, how was it back home, Paul? That was all right. You, you saw Carl's mother? Let's, let's not talk about that. Franz, what is it? Someone's coming. Got your gun? No, I dropped it in the attack. I got my knife, though. Maybe one of them. Yeah, it is. He's coming in here. I got him. No. He won't do us any harm. Now. Is he dead? He must be. I stabbed him. Paul, I didn't want to kill him. Oh, don't be foolish, friends. We can't help it. That's what we're here for, to kill or be killed. Oh. Paul, he isn't dead. He isn't dead. Here, get me a bandage. Quick, in my kit. All right, uh, get, get his coat on. Yeah. You will fix you up, fella. Let me turn you over. No, no. Don't look at me like that. I won't hurt you. I want to help you. Here you are, Hans. Bandages. Oh, if you could only understand me. It's all right. Come on. And to think if we'd only run two yards further to the left, we'd never have had to do it. <gasps> Franz, give him some water. I, I can't stand My canteen's empty. Well, use mine. Here. Um, well, there's a bullet hole right through it. Oh, we've got to get him some water. The firing's lit up some. I, I'll see what I can find. Where are you going? Well, there must be a canteen on some of the corpses. I'll be right back. Paul, be careful. Why do you take so long dying? You're going to die anyway. No, no, I didn't mean that. You won't die. They're only little wounds. You'll get home long before we will. You're dead. They can't do any more to you. Why should they send us out to fight each other? Franz! I'm here. Paul, Paul, get back in the shell hole, quick. Give me your hand. I've got you there. After four years. To get it now, just just the very last. The last? Who knows how long this mess will go on? Here. Here, let's have a look. Oh. It's not bad, Paul. Just below the knee. You're safe. Then go home. The bandage is in my kit. Better use a piece of my paste. Pines, how, how far below the knee am I hit? At least four inches. You're lying. It's hardly an inch. Hands, if they take my leg off, I'll kill myself. Shut up. I tell you, it's nothing. If I ever get through this mess, I wanted to be a forester. You can still be a forester. I won't go through life as a cripple. I'll, I'll kill myself. You won't do that. You're not a coward, Paul. And you wouldn't leave me alone. All the boys we came out with are gone. Hans, Albert, and Wilhelm. Oh, nothing to look forward to but mud, mud, mud. No, 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 no. Here, cheer up, old man. Have a cigarette. We aren't dead yet. Hey, Paul, do you remember how we stole the goose and cooked it? You brought me out of the barrage when I, when I was a young recruit and wounded for the first time. I cried then, Franz. It's almost four years ago. Four years. There. That bandage will hold you for a while. Now, come on. I'm going to carry you in. No, no. Make too good a target. Go on, Franz. I'll, I'll crawl in after you. Don't be a fool. Come on now. Here. There. Up over the edge of the hole. Here we go. Am I, am I very heavy? Oh, light as a feather. 
Orderly, get a stretcher. What have you got? Paul, he, he's wounded in the knee. I brought him in. Here, let me help you lay him down. Easy. You might have saved yourself the trouble. He's dead. Dead? He can't be. He, he's just been hit in the knee. He's fainted. He's stone dead. Sperner must have got him in the head while you were carrying him. Dead? Paul. Paul. Four years of hell, and I'm still alive. Alone. And Franz himself? He fell a month before the armistice. On a day so still that the armor report confined itself to the single sentence. All quiet on the Western Front. The general view of many in the post-war world was that the ultimate enemy was not tyranny, but any force that would lead uh, to war. This view was well represented in the 1939-40 15-minute radio series Secret Agent K-7 Returns. In this series, Secret Agent K-7 supervises a rotating team of agents who seek to maintain the world's balance of power. To do this, they often violate civil liberties and support repressive regimes that do the same. The show's concerns seem to be maintaining peace at any cost. This episode from April 23, 1940, takes a different tack, as a secret agent sets out on a fact-finding mission in an aggressive, warmongering nation. adventurer K-7, former United States secret agent who operated in 22 countries on land, on sea, and in the air, brings you a story of today. And here is K-7. Again, I bring you a story that is different. Few people realize that in the world of today, 
secret agents often influence international diplomacy by supplying information. What movements are the aggressors planning? What are their colonial aspirations? The answers are important, but the answer to what lies in the people's hearts is more important. Knowing has meant the difference between war and peace. To illustrate a different type of work performed by secret agents, an imaginative story of world crises is now introduced by John Holbrook. Thank you, K-7. In this story, let us assume that recently the world waited with bated breath for a speech that all feared would mean war. In such an atmosphere, Special Agent M answered a call by radio telephone. He talked to a great diplomat. As he finished, he hung up the receiver. That was a guarded conversation, M. Who was it? The ambassador to a great nation. Well, M, what's the matter? Ivan, that brief conversation was more important than any call we've ever had. A statesman has called upon us for vital information. We've got to go into a country and find out how its people feel, what they think. World peace may hang on the accuracy of our report. You mean we are not on the trail of any particular group of spies? No, Ivan. The man we're after this time is the head of a great state. We've got to pierce his censorship, overcome the fear his secret police have put into the hearts of his subjects. We've got to find out what men and women are thinking, and we've got just 48 hours to accomplish that task. Start packing, Ivan. We fly tonight. Ivan crossed the border that night. The next morning found them mingling with the people whose thoughts, hopes, and fears were carefully guarded secrets. They were not a hostile people. Instead, they wanted to talk. They wanted news from the outside world. Agent M and Ivan separated once they were in the country. Their problem was to overcome fear. They interviewed many people, but three of them told the whole story. You're an officer in the army, sir. I hesitate to ask you this. But do you think there will be war? Do your people want war? We ask that of each other. No one knows. I wish I could answer you frankly. Surely no one can hear us. The very walls of the ears. We're spied upon constantly. We don't dare speak our mind, in public or in our homes. You can't realize what that means. No, I can't realize it. We don't know what the world thinks. We have no newspapers except the controlled press. Would you believe that news is being smuggled into us? What do you mean? Many of us have relatives and friends in other countries. They read the world news and condense the stories into a few words. Some of this condensed news reaches us. And when it does, we meet in little groups, read it to each other. Then each man makes a copy of the stories and goes out to read the news to other groups. Is our way of getting information. Well, certainly you don't enjoy living under such oppression. Would you? We have always been a proud people. Now we are treated like criminals, spied upon from every quarter. Someday. Uh, you were going to say. Only that it will not always be the same. Now tell me of the outside world. What do your leaders think? They want peace. They believe international problems can be settled by conflict. And they're right. They're right. If only my people could know that. 
Our government wouldn't dare lead us blindly into useless sacrifice. If war comes... Now what's the matter? We are watched. If you should repeat what I have said, I would be seized, separated from my family. I must leave you, my friend. Goodbye. I hope your visit is a pleasant one. Hail our leader! You are mother. Are your sons in the army? Yes, all of them. And I have three. One is 19. He is with his regiment. One is 17. He is in military school. My youngest son is 10. Surely, a boy of 10. Yes, Paul, too. He and other boys his age drill each afternoon. They wear uniforms. They carry wooden guns. You are a woman. You've been in other countries. Tell me, what is the world coming to? Are we mad, all of us? Please. Some way will be found. You, you can't say that. But what hope have we? You don't understand. You can't. Each morning I watch little Paul start for school. He doesn't run and jump the way boys used to when I was his age. He marches. Marches. Do you understand what that means? He marches to school just as he will someday march away to war. I want my little boy to be a little boy, not a soldier. Perhaps you exaggerate. Oh, no. No, I know what's coming. I was 16 during the Great War. I remember. Why do we have to stand in line with a ration card now to buy food if war isn't coming? It was so in 1917. Look at this card. I can buy meat for my family once each week. I can have just so much butter, so much flour... What does it mean? I'll tell you. Our money goes for airplanes, for guns to feed these soldiers whose tramp we hear even in our sleep. Are you taxed heavily? Almost half of the money my husband makes. Each year we have less money. Yet each month my husband has to work longer hours. He goes to work before dawn, comes home at night, eats his dinner, then puts on a uniform and goes to a party meeting. Is it like that in your country? No, of course not. Our citizens don't wear uniforms. Only our soldiers and sailors. Why can't it be like that here? Why doesn't some world leader speak? Perhaps one will. Yes. Probably, but he will speak too late. I lost a brother during the World War. He fought for greater empire. For empire. Must I now lose a husband and three sons? Must I see my little Paul, my baby, marching, marching, marching? He's my baby. He's not a soldier. They can't have him. Not yet. Someone has got to tell them. Someone has got to. I work ten hours a day. And at night I must drill for the party. I don't want to be a soldier. I just want my work, my family. Why can't it be like the old days? Perhaps it will be again soon. I've given up hope. I remember when I was a boy. We had a lovely flower garden. And in the evening when my father came home from work, 
would sit there with us and talk to us and smoke his pipe. Or perhaps we would go to the music garden and hear women and men laughing and sing. Surely men and women laugh and sing yet? Yes, but suddenly the laughter stops. And we must sing about a man none of us remember, some man who died in a riot. You can't understand. I'm sick of working for nothing. I'm sick of military music, of parades. I'm sick of the party. We're all sick of it. We want a different world. The party is wrong. I listen to speeches and say over again, lies, lies, lies. Why doesn't some man speak? Why doesn't he say, we want peace? Down with the party. Down with their lies. You will come with me. Who? Who are you? Not the police. No, I didn't mean what I said. I didn't mean it. Let me explain. Why are you arresting this man? Because he is a traitor to the state. Now, come on out. Let me explain. I didn't mean what I said. What I didn't... The next day... Agent M and Yvonne met again at the flying field and prepared to leave the country. Both looked haggard, worn. What will happen, Em? What will it all lead to? No man knows. Perhaps as a result of the information we're taking back, a voice will ring out across the world. Perhaps a proposal will be made that these people will hear. And if that happens, their leaders will turn pale. War will at least be put off. That's all that we can hope for. of a people's leader, but if peace lies in a people's hearts, a successful war of aggression is impossible. History has taught this lesson many times, but when men are mad for power, the lessons of the past are forgotten. Pray for peace in the name of humanity. Listen for my next story. This is K-7 speaking.
While people may have wanted peace, war was coming. Indeed, it had come to Europe. Opposition to American involvement in the war remained strong, led by many artists and writers. In the next four episodes, we'll take a look at other anti-war works of this era, as well as a basis for them in reality. We'll cover that tomorrow. That will do it for today's episode of The War. Today's program featured Lionel Barrymore, Herbert Hoover, and Clark Gable. If you would like to share your experience or that of a loved one during World War II, please email your stories to box13 at greatdetectives.net. We'll consider all stories to be shared on the air. We also welcome your suggestion as to future programs. This program is dedicated to those who fought and died in World War II and is presented as a service of the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio, greatdetectives.net. The opening theme is The Heroic by Ken Curlin, kencurlin.com.